0: Well, Miss Terry told me if we're not playing good to get on their butt. So I, so I just did what I was told. Well, if ripping some tail a little bit is what it takes to get those guys to play as well as they can play. And that's what you got to do, coach. Totally get it. Completely understand it. And I'm glad Miss Terry is on board with that as well. Welcome to Always College Football. I'm Greg McElroy, your host. Appreciate you being with us. Thanks to Mark, Jack, and Jake. Back in the studio, getting this thing done the right way. What a great weekend of college football it was. So many teams going on the road, so many difficult matchups. Some teams prevailed. Some teams didn't play so well. We're going to go through the 10 things we learned this past weekend in college football. We do it every single week. Some of them are matchup specific. Some of our trends. Some of them might even involve the hot seat. We don't like to talk about the hot seat here on Always College Football. We celebrate the sport. We cover it in a positive way, but the hot seat. Deserves recognition this week. Talk about Alabama. We'll talk about Notre Dame. We'll talk about Texas A&M. We'll talk about Kentucky. We'll talk about Penn State and Washington. We'll talk about top 10 that we have now in college football. We'll talk about Georgia. Maybe their struggles just a little bit. We'll talk about Texas and the upcoming Red River rivalry that should maybe put some stress on a team that looks very complete At the moment, we'll talk about injuries. We'll talk about all kinds of stuff today. It's a Monday edition. We continue to ask you to like, rate and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast. It means a lot to us. And we would continue to, I guess, push you in that direction if you're willing to go. So let's not waste any time. We got a long show and a lot of things to look forward to. Let's get it kicked off with our AP poll reaction. The AP polls out again, like we do every single Monday. We just take a peek at it real quick. For those that have not seen the AP poll, take a peek. It's it's not a lot of change. It's not a lot of adjustment. A couple things I thought maybe deserved to be a little tweaked. But look, it, it's the AP poll. They're, they're rapidly adjusting as they move forward. So one thing that I think was of note a little bit in the AP poll is that George is still the number one team, but they are now down... 35 first place votes. They had 60 of the 63 in the preseason poll. So people are cooling a little bit on Georgia. And you're going to see in my rankings here in a minute, I thought that that was a good win. And I'll explain why a little bit later. I know Auburn is coming off of what was a beatdown at the hands of AM, but I'm going to explain why this is, I think people overreact a little bit because Georgia's held to kind of an unrealistic standard. Okay, so we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, The top seven teams in the AP poll were unchanged. And then one other thing of significance is that Kentucky has entered the rankings for the first time this year at 20. Uh, They were one of two teams to enter the poll this week. But I ask the AP poll voters this. If Kentucky wore a different uniform or if Kentucky say, for instance, was named, I don't know, Penn State, would they only be 20? Because that was a thorough dismantling of a team along the line of scrimmage, offensively and defensively, and to move up into the pole and get to 20? To me, it felt a little bit disrespectful, and I would imagine that Mark Stoops will use that when they take the field this week against the Georgia Bulldogs. I'll always give you my power rankings these aren't based on anything other than the fact that I, this is just kind of how I see them right now. Number one, I have the Texas Longhorns. Not number one a week ago. I have moved them into the number one spot. Washington was in the number one spot, by the way, last week. Washington free fell quite a ways. I'll explain in a minute. But Texas, I think, is the most complete team right now. Their biggest question mark is in the secondary, and we'll talk about that in a second. But I think Texas right now has the resume and the level of dominance that I've come to expect from teams that should be at the top. Number two, I have Michigan. They were not anywhere near the top two in my poll the last couple of weeks, but I think defensively they're playing off the charts. That should come as no surprise. They've been amazing on that side of the ball for a while. Offensively, still very much a work in progress, but there were bright spots this past weekend that have me feeling as though the trajectory is appropriate. So I have them at two. Georgia's at three. Uh, Georgia, it was a tough game on the road against a rival and an arrival that's in desperation mode after they lost the week before. So was it perfect? Not by any stretch of the imagination. I'll explain in a minute, but Georgia, I think still a very, very good football team. have them at number three right now. Ohio state's at number four, love Ohio state have been impressed with Ohio state, obviously not to be penalized this week. It was a great win last week. against Notre Dame get to kind of catch their breath a little bit at five. I have Florida state, At 6, I have Washington, who fell drastically this past weekend. The penalties are still a problem. I'll talk about them in a minute. Penn State's at 7. A little sloppy early against Northwestern, but I didn't feel like we needed to overreact. I still think that team has a lot of game and a lot of ability. Uh, At 8, I have Oregon. We're going to find out all we want to know about Oregon in the coming weeks, but another dominant performance against a lower-tier team. This was a maturity test. I thought they played well, obviously, after what was just a touch of a slow start. At 9, I have Oklahoma. Uh, They were not in the top 10 last week, but I thought that this was a solid win. Iowa State had played Oklahoma really close, really, really close in each of the last eight seasons, and Oklahoma has a tendency with this spot right here the week before the Red River rivalry, maybe look ahead mode. Hey, we're not, you know, focus on the task at hand, what's right in front of you. That wasn't the case. They were dialed in and put together a complete dominant performance defensively they continue to take strides they did however allow 20 points for the first time this season but either way Oklahoma feels poised I think to give Texas one heck of a game there in Dallas this weekend and then finally in my top 10 welcome to the top 10 USC people are going to look at the final score understandably so I'm going to look at the first three quarters of dominance I want to see that USC for 60 minutes And if I see that version of USC, those first three quarters in which they had a 27-point lead on the road with a 9 a.m. local start on their body clock, 27 points was the lead. 9 a.m. local start. I came away impressed with USC. Now, defensively, we'll talk about it in a minute. The last quarter, the last 17, 18 minutes of the game, not so great. But the first quarter, defensively, pretty good. So I think there's a lot... To take away from SC, they're in the top 10. I still think they remain remarkably dangerous because Caleb Williams might be playing as well as he's ever played. Monday staple. What did we learn from this past weekend? We tried to select 10 things that we learned, 10 observations that we had, break down some games naturally throughout the course of it, but here's a few things that were at the top of my mind coming in to our Monday recap edition of what transpired this weekend. Georgia right now is very much a work in progress, okay? And and that's okay. Like, that's okay. A lot of people, I think, that have watched the Bulldogs, they kind of expected, you know what, they're just going to go in and just run roughshod over everybody, and I'm fine with that. Like, if if your expectation is to beat everybody by 30 and you don't do it, I understand. That's cool. I'm good with it. But you're looking at it, well, Auburn stinks, and Auburn just got blown out by a and m and and you know why are we why are we hanging around i i i get that so perception is that georgia and their fans hold themselves to a higher standard and i totally support that but here's where they need to get things figured out okay the slow starts at some point or another are going to come back to bite them and and so far we saw it against ball state we saw it against ut martin they were down 14-3, I believe, 14-whatever uh, against South Carolina. They're down 10-0 against Auburn. They struggled out of the gate this past weekend, and it kind of opened the door to create that double-digit lead. Now, you kind of sit there, and Peyton Thorne breaks off a 61-yard run. Uh, obviously, they, they held to the field goal, which was big. Then Carson Beck forces one into tight coverage, thought it was a less-than-stellar decision. I thought he bounced back beautifully, and I'll explain that here in just a minute. But you give them possession on your side of the 50, they had a seven play, 48 yard drive with Jarquez Hunter finding the end zone. Now you're down 10 0 and everybody and their brothers going nuts there in Jordan Hare. But what I was most impressed with is that Carson Beck didn't flinch, nobody on that Georgia team at that moment, flinched. You're on the road in a crazy hostile environment where they're feeling it and it felt the energy coming through the screen. Carson Beck didn't flinch. And I saw on Twitter, I saw people saying all kinds of stuff like Beck ain't it. He's not the answer. Like, I thought Carson Beck played really well under the circumstances. I saw people also saying, well, you know, all he does is look at Brock Bowers. Well, wouldn't you? I would too. If I was with my back against the wall against a team that's playing well, I'd be looking at the most reliable target maybe in America. And he did so. Brock Bowers completely took over the game. Here's the other thing I'll say about Carson Beck. On third down, that's when quarterback play needs to be at its best. Like Third down for quarterbacks, third down in red zone, high level quarterbacks play well in those two areas. And if you don't play well on third down, which more often than not is going to be a pass and you don't play well when the windows condense in the red zone, you're going to have a hard time being a top flight guy. Well, Carson Beck was eight of 13 on third down. And I think that's a good starting point, man. He faced the music for really the first time in his career and did what you want a young quarterback. I know he's a fourth year player, but young in his starting career, he faced the pressure, and put together a couple of big drives there late in the game to figure it out. Brock Bowers continues to amaze. The guy's incredible. If he's not in the mix for the Heisman, then we're not doing the Heisman right. I know that it's a quarterback award, but if it's supposed to go to the most outstanding player in college football, how can you possibly make a case that Brock Bowers is not among the most outstanding players in college football? It was sensational again this past weekend. Here's one thing that has concerned me a bit with Georgia, at least this past weekend. Auburn ran for 218 yards, okay? It was the first time since 2018 that Georgia allowed more than 200 yards on the ground. That's not something that we're used to seeing. And a lot of people coming into the season were saying, well, this defense might be better. This defense might be better than they were the last two years. I thought it was laughable for people to make that assumption but clearly this defense is not what it was the last two, two years. And that's okay because what we saw in 2021 was a historically great defense. Last year, they followed it up with yet again, a historically great defense. If this group has some growing pains, it's not the end of the world because they have a lot of young players and they've also been pretty dang beat up. All right. They've been really beat up this fall. They have Lad McConkey's back season debut. Uh, uh, J- Javon Bullard returned to the starting lineup. Michael Williams got in the action. So they've been a little bit beat up. So I think it's totally understandable right now that you go on the road, uh, first really hostile environment that you faced, and they were able to come back and do so with their back against the wall with some timely drives, some timely possessions, and just finding a way when you don't have your best stuff to win. That's the makings of an elite team. You don't have your best stuff, You're on the road, in a hostile environment, and you win. Who cares about the style points? You just noticed, I actually moved Georgia up in my poll because I thought that was a resilient performance to find a way. And I was impressed by Carson Beck. I was impressed by his bounce back after the mistake. And I was impressed how they found a way to get it done in a very difficult spot. Takeaway number two from the weekend. I think this weekend is for the SEC East Championship. Kentucky and Georgia. We just talked about Georgia. They'll be hosting Kentucky this Saturday night. I can't wait to watch that game. But Kentucky has now won three straight against the Florida Gators. They absolutely dismantled Florida in this game. They had snapped, obviously, a 31-game losing streak back in 2018, but now they've won four of the last six against the Gators, and this was a tremendous performance. Ray Davis is this year's Quinshawn Judkins. And what I mean by that is that last year, early in the old miss season, no one really knew anything about Quinshawn Judkins. The people were like, I you know, under kind of an under recruited guy from Montgomery. Somehow Lane Kiffin was able to get him, and then boom. It's like, this guy's unbelievable, right? This guy's amazing. Well, that's kind of what Ray Davis is right now. He was at Vanderbilt. He transferred to Kentucky. And you're like, who is this guy, Ray Davis? He's, he's pretty decent. Well, now the world knows. All right, 280 yards rushing. That's the third most. In a single game in Kentucky history, behind 284 by Lynn Bowden, that was against Louisville in 2019, who, by the way, for those that don't remember, Louisville's defense in 2019, not exactly the 85 Bears. And then Mo Williams, back in 1995, ran for nearly 300 against South Carolina. For those that don't remember, South Carolina in 95, it took a peek. Not a great defensive output. So either way, Ray Davis doing what he did, against the number one defense in the SEC tells you all you need to know, man. And the big blue wall, long talked about, well, Kentucky's Achilles heel the last year was their offensive line. Well, they not only didn't give up a sack, they've now only given up four sacks in the last five games, and that was coming after a year when they gave up 47 sacks last year. They were the fifth worst offensive line in regards to sack rate. In all of college football, they've given up four through five games and did so against a Florida group that had made a living behind teams' offensive lines. And remember, too, Florida played against Tennessee. Florida's played against Utah. They've played against capable outfits. It's not like they were way up in the rankings because they hadn't played anybody. Florida played against capable outfits, and they had done really a pretty dang good job. What Florida had also been able to do, they have been able to run the football. Well, the elite running back duo of Trevor Etienne and Montreal Johnson had 71 total yards. And when you account for the sacks, Florida had 69 rushing yards as a team. So Kentucky showcased a defensive front that was tenacious, that was pushing Florida around, that was limiting what they could do. It was truly a terrific, terrific performance from Kentucky in the front seven defensively. The one area, if we're going to find the area, hey, this is where I'd like to grow if I'm Kentucky, they got to get better at the quarterback spot right now. And I love Devin Leary. You guys know that dating back to his time at NC State. I think he's a really good football player, but the numbers would suggest it was a terrible, terrible day. Just 9 of 20 for 69 yards and a touchdown. And in the first half, he was just 4 of 12. But when you kind of dive a little bit deeper, man, they had some key drops that could have really opened this thing up. I mean, Barry and Brown dropped uh, a would-be touchdown. Uh, Alex Rayner obviously ended up kicking the field goal on that drive. Uh, Dane Key dropped a pass on third and nine in the third quarter that would have extended a drive. So there were some key drops in the game. But if Kentucky is going to go toe-to-toe with the Georgia Bulldogs next week. Ray Davis, I'm just going to go out on a limb. He's probably not going to run for 280 next week. We just talked about Georgia's rush defense and how they had one of the worst performances they've had in five years against Auburn. Someone tells me they're going to be a little bit ticked off next week in the front seven, and Ray Davis is not going to be able to go off. But... Devin Leary, I think, has to be able to get things going a little bit for Kentucky there to offset it. But I think those two teams right now, and I love what Missouri's done. Tennessee looked much better this week. But right now, the two best teams in the SEC East are the Georgia Bulldogs and the Kentucky Wildcats. So I really think that the SEC uh, SEC East will be decided on the field in Athens on Saturday night. Takeaway number three. Texas, who I think right now is playing terrific football, has obviously a quality win, a win that continues to get better based on what Alabama's done these last couple weeks. But Texas, as of right now, is the team in college football that is the most complete team. Okay? That being said, I'm legitimately concerned for them coming up this week against Oklahoma in the red river rivalry. And he, here's my concern. Defensive line front seven defensively. They are excellent, extremely disruptive along the defensive front, very athletic and instinctive at linebacker. Jalen Ford is as instinctive as a linebacker as you'll find in all of college football. The guy's got six career picks as a middle linebacker. So very instinctive, great with his eyes. The defensive front, including Byron Murphy, the defensive tackle, number 90. These guys are awesome. They are awesome, man. They are so fun to watch. But, and that's a big, big B, I'm starting to be a little concerned about their secondary. Now you're going to say, well, hang on, Kansas Kansas couldn't really get much going. Look at the numbers for Jason Bean last weekend. Well, Jason Bean did have one touchdown on the opening drive of the second half, but that was on a big play down the field. You look at Jalen Milrow. There were a couple moments down the field where they were able to get one-on-ones with safeties. And the safeties, and I think they are a talented group, relatively speaking, but Jaron Thompson, safety, is going to struggle in one-on-one coverage. Jalen Catalan, is going to struggle in one-on-one coverage. Guess what most safeties do? It's not, it's not the end of the world. They're safeties because they're small linebackers and they're sure tacklers, right? They're back there as the last line of defense. But in coverage, if you can get one-on-ones against them, I think you can win. I think on the perimeter, and we don't know right now what's going on with Ryan Watts. He got banged up, left the game last weekend. He's one of their starting corners. And then on the other side, one of their starting corners. I think that this wide receiver group and passing attack for Oklahoma is built to exploit that secondary. They're going to get some big plays. They're going to distribute the ball in the intermediates and down the field. They'll attack the middle of the field. They're going to do a lot of different things that are going to put a lot of stress on the one question mark I have for the Texas Longhorns, and that's the secondary. As far as Texas' offense is concerned, I continue to be so impressed, so impressed with what I've seen from their running backs the last couple weeks. C.J. Baxter got the start early in the season. Well, now he's been supplanted by Jonathan Brooks. Jonathan Brooks coming off a 200-yard performance against Kansas. And let's be real. Kansas defensively is not elite. They do a decent job. They hang in there. They had way too many plays this past weekend, and they got gassed as the game went along. But this run game is excellent. And I think Texas this week needs to think about ball control, time-consuming possessions, impose their will at the line of scrimmage against a front seven with Oklahoma that has been so improved this season so far. We know the weapons are elite. Xavier Worthy's amazing. Ad Mitchell's coming off a career game. So those two guys are awesome. Whittington's always going to be reliable. And I think Quinn Ewers is coming into his own as far as anticipating throws and playing smart, sound football week in and week out. But this will be a massive test for them this weekend. And we're finally going to figure out whether or not that safety play, secondary play for the Longhorns is ultimately the Achilles heel. That's the one question I have. But Other than that, man, they are stacked from top to bottom Texas is excellent excellent at every single position but there are question marks in the back end we're going to find out whether or not those question marks get them beat against the Sooners have you ever dreamed of hitting the road in your very own customized Mercedes-Benz sprinter follow college football all season long by hitting all the biggest games in college football's most celebrated stadiums. At ESPN, we dreamed that dream, and with the help of Mercedes-Benz, we made it happen. This year, our very own Jen Latta has teamed up with Mercedes-Benz designers to create a road-ready, fully functional, state-of-the-art podcast studio on wheels. The ride is pure Mercedes-Benz with all-wheel drive and the latest driver assistance, safety, and tech. The podcast studio must be seen and heard to be believed. A spacious and chill conversation space with mics, camera, and mixing board to capture the action. On board, Jen Latta will be interviewing some of the biggest names in college football. All points to Mercedes-Benz for always bringing some extra. Out back of the sprinter, they're innovating pushing the science of the tailgate, complete with grill, cooler, TV monitors, and more. This is hashtag van life meets the fan life. To get an inside look to this one-of-a-kind, blow-your-mind collaboration came together, visit mbvans.com slash sprinterlabs. The Mercedes-Benz ESPN College Football Podcast Sprinter coming soon to a game near you. Hey, college football fans, whether you're on the field or in the stands, make sure you're well protected. Like having a solid defense to shut down that wide receiver in the final quarter, opening lanes for your running backs to do their thing. And of course, reliability when protecting your quarterback because great coverage is a game changer. That's why Allstate provides that same protection off the field giving you reliable coverage and game-winning protection for everything that matters, helping you stay game day ready every day. So get protected with Allstate. Visit allstate.com or call a local agent today to learn more. Brought to you by Allstate. You're in good hands. Insurance coverage is subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Allstate Fire and Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates Northbrook, Illinois. Sam Hartman and the Notre Dame Fighting Irish are not out of the college football playoff race whatsoever, but there's an awful lot that they got to clean up. Man, this was a gutsy effort going on the road to Durham against a really well coached football team, a team that actually really surprised me with how physical they were able to play. Duke, if there was one takeaway from the weekend, is that Duke will go toe-to-toe, man. They are not scared. They will go toe-to-toe, and they will battle, and their coaches will make adjustments, and next thing you know, you're going to fast forward, and all of a sudden, you it doesn't feel like at any point you were outplayed in the game, but you're actually trailing. And that's kind of how it felt this past weekend. Now, they were on the heels of a season-defining drive last week, and they came up short because Ohio State was able to punch it in at game's end. Well, now they have their own opportunity to have a season-defining drive, and they answer the bell. 10 plays, 95 yards, two-point conversion, 31 seconds remaining in the ball game. It was clinic, man. It was a great, great job there at the end, but there's some things they really need to clean up if they're going to contend at the top of college football. One, they got to get healthy at wide receiver absolutely have to get healthy at wide receiver. Jaden Thomas, of course, he's the go-to guy at wide receiver. He's got to get healthy. He's had a hamstring. Jaden Greathouse, you know, he he's he's unavailable. You've lost Matt Salerno the last couple of weeks with a leg injury. They got to get healthy at wide receiver if this team's going to really take the next step and start knocking off some of the really good teams they have on their schedule down the stretch. They got to clean up penalties. That goes without saying, man. Notre Dame had six pre-snap penalties offensively and three offsides on defense. Look, Duke has done a great job of making that place feel a little bit more hostile. They've done a great job of that. But Notre Dame can never be a penalized team. They're just not crazy explosive. So if they're behind the sticks, if they're in a position where they are in first and 15s, second and longs because of pre-snap infractions, they're going to have a difficult time overcoming those. In the last four games, they've committed 34 penalties. 34, including 10 at NC State, 8 against Central Michigan, and 12 against Duke. Notre Dame's a well-coached outfit. They're really good. They are a really good football team, but they cannot be their own worst enemy. They got to get this thing adjusted and get this thing adjusted quickly because if they're playing behind the sticks and off schedule, it's going to be hard for them to sustain. What's going on with the run game is the next question. Now, the final stats will kind of show off an effort that's probably a little better than it actually was, five and a half yards with the sack-adjusted rushing rate. But when you look and you dive just a little bit further, I mean, you had the Sam Hartman scramble, which was awesome, I might add. You have the, the fake punt, That was a 34-yard gain that goes down as a run. So you take those two out. Now you have a 3.2, 3.82, excuse me, sack-adjusted rushing effort. And then prior to Estime's big run to put the game on ice, they were at 2.63 rushing yards per carry. That's just not good enough. I mean, the strength of this team supposedly is supposed to be the offensive line, and you're Bread and butter is running the football and running the football downhill, and yet they couldn't do it. Now, credit to Duke. They did a great job being stout and steady in the front, but that's just not going to be good enough. I referenced the scramble. Man, Hartman, what an understanding. I mean, 4th and 16, people will be talking about that scramble. If they go on to do what they want to do, then they'll be talking about that scramble forever in South Bend, Indiana. Uh, Other things of significance for Notre Dame at the moment. Mitchell Evans, is this guy becoming a star before our eyes? Just just out of sheer curiosity, because we had talked all offseason, man, how do you replace Michael Mayer? How do you replace Michael Mayer, right? Look, I know that that when you take into account who won the Mackey Award last year and whatever, like Brock Bowers is incredible, no doubt about it. Michael Mayer was at worst, at worst, the second best tight end in college football, at worst. Well, now Mitchell Evans is becoming a real difference maker. He accounted for 60% of the passing yardage, 60% by a tight end. Now, I know they're depleted at receiver, but when you think about it, you got 28-yard seam route, you have a third and eight conversion that he had nine yards, had a 21-yarder on third down, had a 36-yard catch and run, another 19-yarder on third down on the game-winning drive. I mean, this guy's becoming a real valuable asset For Sam Hartman, if he can continue to develop and then you have two tight ends between him and Holden stays, you got a real, real thing going for their tight end position. But the receivers continue to be a question mark for me. You had a big drop in the red zone by Rico Flores. You had the red zone drop by Tobias Merriweather. You just I think they're going to have to figure some things out offensively because the last two weeks against both Duke and against Uh, and against um, Ohio state 35 points offensively in eight quarters, just not going to be good enough. So Jared Parker is going to have to adapt and adjust. He's the offensive coordinator and find a way to create some more big play potential down the road. Takeaway number five, the sleepwalking thing in college football right now is a very real thing. Okay. We are now at the point week five, week six, week seven, week eight, where teams are starting to run on empty. You know, bye weeks are coming up. Some teams have played five, six straight opponents, three or four straight conference opponents, high-level caliber opponents. So if you continue to start slowly, the longer these games go, and I'm talking a little bit about Georgia, but in this particular section, I'm going to focus on Penn State, and I'm going to focus on Washington. The sleepwalk thing is real. All right, Penn State... They officially now I'm starting to be a little concerned about special teams a little bit, right? We're not going to get into the weeds on special teams, but you fumble the opening kickoff. You basically give Northwestern three points right out of the gate. And then it takes you really two and a half quarters to start to flex, right? And and on a day when the offense really just kind of never found their groove, and we're talking about a defense, by the way. In Northwestern, that had been one of the worst rushing attack defenses in the entire Big Ten. And for the ground game for Penn State, which at your core, that's who you want to be, run first outfit, complement it with play action, and more on Aller in a minute, you can't have just three and a half yards of carry. It just it just can't happen. They gotta do a better job being efficient in the run game to be able to take some of the pressure off of an inexperienced quarterback. And I think you look at Drew Aller, really the last couple weeks, maybe just not as crisp as he's been in the past. Now, the numbers aren't going to jump off the page, especially knowing the upside and the expectation level. But the one thing I would continue to harp on for Penn State, they're going to be far more talented than almost everyone they play, with the exception of, of Michigan and Ohio State. Pretty much everyone else that Penn State plays, they have a talent advantage against. And it's a significant one, more often than not. While everybody is maybe like, well, we're, we're, we need more deep ball. We need more explosiveness in the passing attack. Understandable. I think in a perfect world, yes, I'd love for Penn State to get there. But at the same time, man, he's not making mistakes. And we're talking about a young quarterback here that has now thrown 158 passes this year without a turnover. So I'm going to find the silver lining with Drew Aller. And even though the passing game is still very much a work in progress, man, there's a lot to be excited about with his willingness to understand, Hey, what's it going to take for us to win this game? And me giving the short field to Northwestern is about the only way they're probably going to find a way to win. So that was solid Washington. On the other hand, another team that I want to talk about with the sleepwalking performance, they have a million penalties I mean, Washington was flagged twelve times for 125 yards. You just can't. I mean, I don't care how explosive your offense is, man. Penalties, like it's not week one anymore. Talked about it with Notre Dame. Talked about it with Washington. Seeing it in other places as well. Like it's not week one. Like why are penalties such a huge factor at this point of the season? We've got to clean some things up as they move forward. And you think about too, there were so many moments when Washington felt like they could just put this thing away. You know, whether it's the, the fumble at the five-yard line. Um, you know, he uh, had the dropped pass that, that would have without question been a touchdown by the tight end. So there's, there's reasons to believe that, man, this game really shouldn't have been close, but the little miscues allowed it to be a lot closer than it should have been. This was just a clunky performance from Washington all the way around. And it's also great, by the way, Because this is a game where Washington in the past, they would lose this game. I've been on the call for Washington's games against Arizona State when Washington was coming off a playoff performance the year before, only to fall and score six points in the effort against the Sun Devils in the desert. The desert has not been kind to the Huskies in the past. So I'm going to, along with Penn State, along with this performance by Washington, I'm going to take it with a grain of salt. I'm going to say that this is an anomaly performance and hopefully we see a better Washington team moving forward because they're going to have to be great in the coming weeks. We know what's coming. Oregon's coming. A few other games are coming as well. Another takeaway this past weekend is the injuries are starting to really mount across the sport and some notable ones that I witnessed this weekend that were just devastating, man. I hate it when guys get hurt. It's just the worst. Riley Leonard, of course, final drive of the game, fall on his ankle. He leaves the game in crutches. The good news is this the injury is at the moment, according to what they've said publicly, doesn't appear to be season-ending. It looks like a high ankle sprain. But, man, you just hate to see that. He played his heart out this past weekend, and to come up short and fumble and, and roll up on your leg is just a bummer, man. So glad that he's going to be okay, and hopefully he can return as soon as possible. Brew McCoy for Tennessee. He's out for the year. Nasty injury there, obviously, uh, and just kind of awkward there in the first half. And he's going to be missed, man, because the receivers for Tennessee have been a little bit inconsistent. McCoy has not been. He's the go-to guy. He's the bell cow. So him being out could certainly impact what Tennessee does down the road. Jalen Daniels, the quarterback of Kansas, missed week one with back tightness. He's out there warming up. We met with him the night before the game. Everything seemed like he was good to go. All of a sudden, he aggravates a back injury in the pregame. He can't go. Now it's Jason Bean. And it was just difficult for Kansas to put anything together offensively. Cade McNamara had that non contact injury there in the first half of the game against Iowa, a game for Iowa against Michigan State. There's no specifics at the moment from the time we're taping this. So hopefully, fingers crossed, it's nothing too serious for Cade McNamara, and hopefully he can return. Jatavion Sanders for Texas got rolled up there on his left leg. Ankle injury. Don't know if he's going to be available this weekend. Juice Wells, a wide receiver for South Carolina, has been unable to go. Had some issues with a lower body injury in camp. Has has, uh, had the issues addressed, but hasn't really been available for an extended period of time at any point this season. Luke Haas. Had a broken collarbone against Texas A&M. He's a he's an Arkansas tight end who was a game breaker the week before. Was really coming into his own. Uh, had 15 reception for 239 yards in his first few games. The guy's a freshman. Him being out now for KJ Jefferson's a huge issue. Katron Allen for Penn State uh, got hurt in the second quarter, missed the final 35 minutes of action with an undisclosed injury right now. So. We're not sure as to whether or not he's going to be available or if Trey Potts will now be the number two back. And then finally, Zachariah Branch at SC missed the game against Colorado. We don't know what it is. No details have emerged Just that. He missed the game with an injury. So injuries are starting to really become an issue across the board. Deontay Lawson for Alabama missed last week, uh, linebacker. So, I mean, a really important piece in the middle of that defense, so, man, injuries are starting to really become an issue in college football, man. So fingers crossed that these guys can be back as soon as humanly possible. And we'll be at 100% because it just makes me sick when guys get banged up over the course of the season. Another thing that has kind of made me sick, I guess, to a certain extent, was just how inept some of these groups were this past weekend defensively. Okay? And there's two teams in particular that I'm going to point out. There's two teams in particular that I'm going to point out. But this, by the way, there's a lot more teams that I could add to this list. There's a lot more, and I'm not picking on LSU. I'm not picking on USC, but the defense that I saw at times in their games this past weekend, whew, man, it's bad ball. Let's start with LSU. Look, I've played against LSU. I've called a million LSU games. I've been around this program for a really long time. I saw what they did against Mississippi State a couple weeks ago. But that was among the worst defensive performances I've seen this season. Okay, you're coming off a week you're playing Ole Miss, and you know Ole Miss got read the riot act all throughout the week by their offensive staff. Coming off a week where they had ten points and averaged less than two yards per carry, well, they had over seven hundred yards of offense against LSU. I mean, that is almost hard to wrap your head around. It really is. The secondary continues to have mistakes. And even when they're lined up appropriately, they can't tackle. I mean, how many shallow cross routes did Ole Miss run with success? How many times did Ole Miss throw hitch routes? Just simple five, six, seven-yard hitch routes, only to see a corner by LSU go up and whiff on the tackle. The linebackers got roasted when they were in coverage. The defensive line didn't log a sack, which, by the way, that defensive line with Harold Perkins... Mason Smith, Makai Wingo, we're talking about maybe the most talented like individuals at their respective position in the SEC. You can make a case, maybe not necessarily with what's gone on at AM and what's gone on in some other places, but we're talking about high level all SEC caliber defenders. And for them not to get a sack is just crazy, man. I mean, the talent is there in some spots, but for whatever reason, man, they just can't quite get it together. And if you listen to Brian Kelly in the preseason, he talked a lot about the fact that his secondary is a red flag. I mean, that's his biggest concern. It was giving him sleepless nights because they brought in a ton of guys in the portal on the defensive side, many of which in the back end, and it just hasn't materialized up to this point. They got roasted this past weekend, and they got to get back to the drawing board because goodness gracious alive. If Ole Miss does that to them, then think about some of the other offenses they're going to face, including an offense this week with Brady Cook and Luther Burden, who... Luther Burden's having a heck of a year. Brady Cook at Missouri is having a heck of a year. If Luther Burden's one-on-one with those DBs this weekend, look out. Because he might go for 200 if they play the way they played this past weekend. And then SC. Now, first quarter, not bad. First quarter, Alex Grinch's defense gave up just 72 yards. They also forced a turnover. Well, over the next three quarters... It was a little bit different. A defense that gave up 492 yards in the last three quarters, 41 points, and did not turn them over whatsoever. Colorado ended up outgaining USC in the performance. Now, they trailed by as many as 27 points, right? Okay. Trailed by as many as 27 points with less than two minutes to play in the third quarter. I mean, but obviously they trim that deficit immediately. So when it's buck 43 and they're within striking distance, man, this thing could get out of, out of hand. The one thing that I think is amazing is that Colorado, when you take out the sack yardage, they ran for 219 yards. Colorado is not a team that has run the football well at all, all season long. And I actually talked about it in Thursday's show last week, I'm like, Colorado's got to take some of the pressure off Shador Sanders and company. They got to just at least try to run the football, just to give the defense a different look, to force the defense to think about it. Because if you're drop back and passing all the time, guess what? The offensive line for Colorado, we know they're a liability. Defenders are going to pin their ears back and come after you. Well, they not only tried to run the ball, they were able to run the ball. And that's concerning, man. You think also, too, the way Alex Grinch plays, he's going to be aggressive. He's going to come after you. He's going to move. He's going to slant. He's going to twist. He's going to do all this other stuff. That's what they do. But in the red zone, they got to be good, and they got to be good on third down. They got to get off the field. Well, how about in the red zone right now? They're giving up touchdowns on two-thirds of the penetrations that are made. That's number 86. Number 86 in the FBS. They're also giving up a ton of explosive plays which is wild to me, man, because they got to be able to at least keep the ball in front of them. Well, it hasn't been the case. Colorado has six passing plays of 20 yards or more, three of 30 yards or more. So on the season, SC has now allowed 20 pass plays of 20 or more yards. That's just not going to cut it. It's not going to cut it against Oregon. It's not going to cut it against what? My goodness, it's not, really not going to cut it against Washington. It's not going to cut it against half the teams in, in the Pac-12 with how they're able to air it out. So SC's got to figure something out defensively, man. I had hoped that they had taken strides, but clearly there's a lot more strides that need to be taken. Mmm, you smell that? That's the scent of fresh turf and freshly cracked Dr. Pepper, which can only mean one thing. It's college football season, so block off your Saturdays and swipe a sweet Dr. Pepper From the mini fridge, because there's a new season of high kicks, long throws, and Fansville commercial breaks to carry you all the way to the West Coast games. That's right, the fans are back, and this year things are heating up. We're talking about hot takes, more heartbreak, more layers of face paint. Get ready to drink in all the drama this season with the help of the most delicious college football tradition there is, Dr. Pepper, the one fans deserve. Alabama is starting to really round into form, okay? Now, you can say what you want about Mississippi State and their own ineptitudes. It's totally fair. Difficult game on the road, though. One that that Mississippi State kind of had to have to at least make it interesting. And we now, it's very clear what the recipe is for Alabama to find success. It's very clear. And people, you know, they get enamored a little bit with, the yards per game, and and the you know passing yards, and rushing yards, and points, and all these other things, uh, that and that's fine, okay. I, I I want everyone to score a million. That'd be great, but that is not the pathway to success for Alabama this year, okay. I think when you look at it, it's more about being efficient than it is having a track meet. Because if you want to have a track meet, there are a lot of teams that want to play that way. Tennessee is a team that wants to make it into a track meet. You think about uh, Colorado, SC, like all these, Washington, they want to make it into a track meet. Well, Alabama's success is not going to be found making it into a track meet. That's just not who they are. That's not who they want to be. But they're very efficient. This past week, yeah, it was only 357 yards of offense, but 6.5 yards of play. So that's super efficient. Maybe it's not jaw-dropping numbers. You're not in the 500s as far as your offensive production, but you're really efficient in the process. Your quarterback, Jalen Milrow, I think he's continuing to show progress. There, there's reason to believe that while this passing attack, and Jalen Milrow, if he drops back in the game 35 times, that's a recipe for disaster. Efficient is the name of the game for Jalen Milrow, and he was on this night for sure. 10 to 12. Hundred and sixty-four yards. Also thought he was very decisive in the run game. Obviously, had the big run where you showcased the top end speed and basically splitting defenders and route to the end zone. 92 yards rushing, couple touchdowns. And obviously the one I referenced was that 50, I think it was 52, 53 yard or there in the first half. Um, and then you just kind of look at how the offensive line is coming together. They're starting to rotate a little bit on the left-hand side. The tight ends are clearly becoming a focal point in this offense. Amari Nyblack, I know just 10 completions on the day for Jalen, but he accounted for three of them for 61 yards. Said all offseason, Amari Nyblack might be the most difficult matchup amongst all of Alabama's weapons. So that I think is something that is certainly worth noting. And then C.J. Dupree has been asked to kind of do all the dirty work, but now he's getting rewarded. Just one catch, but for 26 yards, I would expect his role to grow within the offense. And then you look at the tight end as well, uh, Robbie Oots, who, while he's never going to get his name in the box score as far as being a top-tier receiving threat, he's doing the dirty work there on the end of the line of scrimmage. I think you think about the defense, though. This is going to be the calling card for Alabama this year. I think they're rounding out at the moment, into becoming what I think might be an elite group. Now, the last two weeks, we've learned a lot. Okay. You think about what Alabama did to Mississippi State this weekend 261 yards given up. Mississippi State offense last week against South Carolina had 487 yards of offense. Okay. So 487 to 261. I would say that's obviously well below what we thought. Mississippi state might be able to create. Now Mississippi state is a bad matchup for them. All right. It's a bad matchup. It has been for years and will Rogers never really played well against Alabama. But you think about this, if you want to look at Mississippi state, let's take it one step further. Think about what Ole Miss did last week, less than two yards of carry, obviously 10 points overall. Well, Ole Miss just rolled up 55 points and 700 yards of offense. So you you look at Alabama's performance against the last two teams, what their season averages are, and what they came in against the Tide, it was a very different performance. Let's take it back one step further. South Florida, okay? South Florida, people are going to say, South Florida, come on, man. Don't use that as an example. Well, just hear me out for a second. Alabama obviously gave South Florida's offense a lot of fits. They scored three points. Three points. Against Alabama, I know it was wet, it was rainy, it was nasty, it was a disgusting day to play offense, but either way, they scored three points. Well, the week after playing Alabama, South Florida's quarterback accounted for 517 yards of offense, and they scored 42 points. So Alabama, just based on the last three opponents since the Texas game where they played awful on the defensive side, relatively speaking, since the Texas game, the last three opponents, this defense is really holding teams in check, and I think that is something that they will continue to rely on. They also showcased the depth. Lawson was out. Jihad Campbell came in, had 14 tackles. Pretty dang good. True freshman Caleb Downs. Safety, 13 tackles in the performance. Man, things are looking good, and Bama forced forced three more interceptions. So they're starting to really get after you on the defensive side. Now, here's the bad things for Bama. They gave up four sacks. All right? They've now allowed 19 sacks in the first 20 quarters of the football season. All right? But I don't think it's all the offensive line's fault. I think some of it has to do with the quarterback holding it a little too long, trying to do a little too much. understand, hey, maybe just cut your losses, throw it away, as opposed to trying to make a play. But then again, that's kind of what Jalen Milrow is—he wants to make a play, and I get that. And sometimes he makes a play, and it's amazing. So that's something you got to take into account. They got to clean that up, knowing that A and coming to town this week. And then the other thing too is I think Mississippi State was able to run the football pretty well. That Woody Marks, you know, sixty-eight yards on nine attempts. That I think in all uh, one hundred fifty-four yards when you adjust for sex, one hundred seventy-six yards. Uh, They're going to have to adjust that because that's nearly six yards to carry. So against the run, not ideal. So Bama, things to clean up as far as their run fits and everything is concerned. But all in all, man, this group is starting to really find themselves. They really are on that side of the football, which leads me to my next point. Next week, takeaway number nine, I think next week might be the battle for the SEC West Championship. Talked about the East Championship earlier, but let's talk a little bit about what the Texas A&M Aggies are doing right now. All right. Almost perfect balance offensively from AM this past weekend. 204 on the ground, 210 through the year. It was their second straight 200 yard running game. They're starting to get things going a little bit. Offensively, I really like what they're doing. I do. I really, really like I think Max Johnson looks really comfortable. He obviously was efficient through the air but he also did a pretty good job using his legs as well. I think he sh- needs to learn how to slide every once in a while. But either way, obviously, at had the 32-yard run. Max Johnson's playing good football, really good football, being thrust into a spot as a backup quarterback. Now that Connor Wigman's lost for the season, you got to be pretty impressed with what you've seen from Max Johnson here in the finishing moments of the Auburn game and the four quarters that he played against the Arkansas Razorbacks. The other takeaway, I think, for AM. Le'Veon Moss is incredible. I mean, incredible. Now, the numbers aren't going to necessarily jump off the page. He had 17 carries for 107 yards. But you just look at how balanced he is, how he makes the first defender miss. The first guy almost never brings him down. And when you are trying to defend the, the pass, and you have to against AM's weapons, you have to be respectful of what they can do through the air. This guy gets going, man, and it is a totally different Animal, Le'Veon Moss is going to be a superstar in college football, and he's probably going to get there sooner than you realize. Then defensively, this is where I'm really loving what I've seen from time to time from a and 15 tackles for all for loss last week against Arkansas. 15. That is an insane number. How about the fact that they have consecutive games in which they had seven sacks, 14 overall. Okay, that's the most in consecutive games since they joined the SEC. This defensive line is completely wrecking havoc. Uh, And even the guys that are big run stoppers, you would think, the 300-plus pounders, they're being disruptive. You put them on the edge, and these guys are getting home. I mean, it's unbelievable just how good this defensive line is playing right now. And Shamar Turner, they're on the edge. I'm not sure I've seen a guy this year that can completely take over the game. I mean, I'm talking completely take over the game. So I am so thrilled with what I've seen from that group. This is why a couple years ago we talked about, man, that defensive line recruiting class for A&M, that thing's going to pay dividends. Well, it's starting to materialize. This group is playing excellent football. and It'll be a tremendous test next week against Alabama. But, man, that is going to be a war in the trenches when Alabama's offensive line is on the field, which has been a little shaky, and Texas A&M's defensive line is on the field because they have been dominant up to this point of the season. Number 10, there is nothing that pleases me more than seeing a coach get removed from the hot seat. It just, it it makes me so happy. Because I've got, y'all, I know that, I know a lot of you guys that are watching and everything, like you want the best for your program. And if you think the guy that's currently leading your program is not up to par, I I get that. Like I want every program to go undefeated. I think you guys know that about me by this point, man. Like I want everyone to go undefeated. I love I love college football and I want everyone to win and feel good about what they have. But when you have a guy that's really on the hot seat and finds their way off, it it just makes me so happy. Because you this is a process oriented world, right? And sometimes we want to win right out of the gate. And sometimes you do. Sonny Dykes at a and last year. Josh Heupel, second year at Tennessee. Uh, Urban Meyer, second year at Ohio State. Second year at Florida. Um, Kirby Smart, second year, almost wins a national championship at Georgia. Uh, Nick Saban winning a na- national championship in his third season at, at Alabama. Like You want things to happen overnight, and I get that. I, I do, but sometimes these things take time. Now, I'm not saying that Neil Brown is going to win a national championship at West Virginia, but they're now 4-1. and one. Like, His seat was scorching hot coming into the season. He had to win the games at home that he was supposed to win. He beats Pitt at home. Great win, especially with your quarterback getting hurt. Takes care of business against Texas Tech the following week. And then obviously goes on the road in a comeback win against TCU to get to 4-1. and one. That's a great job. <laughs> That's a great, great job by Neil Brown. Brent Pry needed to have a win. I know it's only his second year, but he had to just show some sort of progress. He finds it against the Pitt Panthers this past weekend in a convincing victory. Billy Napier, I know that they lost to Kentucky this past weekend, but I think everyone's looking at Billy Napier's process and seeing, man, if we just see this thing through, it's going to work out. It wasn't good this past weekend, but it was dang good against Tennessee. And you see the recruiting class that he's got coming in; like things are moving in the right direction. How about Justin Wilcox at Cal? He's three and two. Should have beat Auburn in week two. Got to win this past weekend. Obviously, plenty of runway to go for Justin Wilcox. It doesn't get any easier in the Pac twelve, but it appears right now things are cooling for him. And then Mike Bloomgren at Rice, man, they're three and two. No one's paying attention to Rice, but he's beaten Houston and he's three and two. So I love when guys remove themselves from the hot seat. Not to not to say they can't be put back on. <laughs> it could definitely happen for sure. If the wheels come off and Neil Brown finishes four and eight, then yeah, okay, I understand that. But it is nice, at least for the moment, to see these guys' seats cooling and to kind of see that the process down the road is paying off with some of the things they've adjusted to over the past couple of years. This year will be the third ever in the AP poll, the third time ever, all right, since 1936, that a single conference might have four of the five highest scoring teams entering the month of October. It's pretty wild when you think about this. 2005 Pac-12, 1957 Big Ten. Well, right now, the Pac-12 has four of the top five highest scoring teams in America. It's pretty wild when you think about it. USC's number one, nearly 54 points a game. Oregon, nearly 52 points a game. Washington's four at 46 points a game. And Washington State's at five at 45.8 points a game. Oklahoma is the one outlier there in the Big 12. They come in with nearly 47 points a game. But the Pac-12, man, they got some teams that can score it out there on the West Coast. It's been so fun to watch up to this point. Thanks for being with us. Please continue to like, rate, and subscribe. It helps us out. It helps the show out. And for all of us here at Always College Football, for Mark, Jake, Jack, I'm Greg. We hope you have a wonderful day. And remember, it's Always College Football.